0: whose novel, Paris by the Book, has just made its paperback debut. The novel features a bookstore, which is practically a character in itself. So if you know my writing, you'll know that it was right up my alley. Liam is here in Winston-Salem for Bookmark's annual Movable Feast. Leem, welcome to Winston-Salem, and welcome to Inside the Writer Studio. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. I have to say, this is the second Paris novel that I have read in as many months. So I want to start out by asking you, what is it about Paris for both readers and writers that charms us, that intrigues us, that for want of a better word, that romances us. I feel like that in some ways is
1: a question that my book itself is trying to answer. Uh, What makes Paris Paris? And one of the things that fascinated me as a kid was how, and fascinated me both as a parent and then when I was a kid myself, which wasn't too many years ago, uh, was that we have these ideas of Paris which are generated by authors for us for decades, and for me particularly important were the Madeline series by Ludwig Bemelmans yeah, and yeah. then the movie and book The Red Balloon by Albert LaMaurice. Yeah. Those were hugely influential on me. And so we decided a few years ago to go to Paris, my family and I, and I gave my kids those books and we followed the book past of those books around the city. And I just realized at one point my daughter, who my youngest daughter, she was just, I think, Oh, she was little then, five or six. And she stood in the middle. I think we were like on the Rue de Turenne, you know, deep in a Paris neighborhood. And she put her hands on her hips and she said, I think I've been here before. And yeah. uh, I, I mean, of course, she hadn't unless, you know, we hadn't been keeping a very good eye on her daycare. Maybe they took her on a day trip. <laughs> but... We thought in that moment I realized that so many Americans, in particular, like Paris is an object of fascination worldwide. But for Americans in particular, so much of our literature is steeped there, and so many people found a literary home there, uh, from Benjamin Franklin on. That I thought this would be this is just a fascinating kind of myth to explore, and so that. I think that's part of what it is. Like Paris, There's a Paris of the mind. I think a lot of people have this kind of place. It's it's a place of freedom. It's a place of romance. It's a place that takes art seriously. And I feel like that's something that people want to have. They want it to exist, even if they don't necessarily think
0: it exists in real life. And again, that's something I tried to tackle with the book. Yeah. I mean, we use this adjective Parisian sometimes out of context. But in my experience going to Paris, this will seem silly to say, but my first impression of Paris was, my God, the place is more Parisian than you could possibly imagine. I mean, it's, it's what we think of as Paris, but, but to the power of 10, you know.
1: It absolutely is. I remember, and I'm, I'm never not, I've never lived in Paris, but I've been many times and it never fails. And when I pop out of the metro for the first time, if I'm coming in from, um, uh, de Gaulle, the airport and if I've taken the train and then I take the subway and I pop out. And Paris looks exactly the same to me as it did to a visitor from, say, a hundred years ago. Yeah. Because yeah. in the inner core it's so strictly regulated, which is kind of a Paris's problem and also Paris's charm, which yeah. is that you are seeing the same Paris that people saw in the late eighteen hundreds. And so I think that's what makes it more Parisian than Paris. And they're also fully aware of uh, themselves as a tourist destination. So, you know, they're going to have the croissant and the yeah. baguettes ready.
0: But I think what you say about it's, it's the same Paris that it was a hundred years ago is especially shocking to an American visitor when we have, for instance, the my next novel is set in New York City in about 1906. And that's gone. I mean right. there's a building here and there, right. a room here and there, but it's essentially it, it doesn't exist anymore. Uh, whereas there are plenty of places in Paris where you can stand and it looks just like it did in nineteen oh six.
1: Absolutely. I mean there's a few new buildings obviously. I mean there's I am pyramid in front of the Louvre and then yeah. there's the new Louis Vuitton Foundation. Uh, building, uh, but that's, they're tucked out to the side, yeah. and so you can look at the boulevards, and you can see the same Paris. And I think that's part of it. People feel like they're joining a conversation, so they'll see the same Paris that the people coming to liberate Paris in World War II. They're going to see the same Paris yeah.
0: as Janet Flanner and Hemingway and everyone else. You're right. Paris is a challenge, an invitation, a city that doesn't distinguish between the two. What do you mean by that? Uh, first of all, I just I'm so complimented by the fact that you read the book.
1: I so rarely, <laughs> I loved it. so rarely interview with people so it's interesting to enter that conversation. So Paris is a challenge and invitation and doesn't really distinguish between the two. I think that part of that comes from my own sense of that uh, my opportunities in Paris, the people that I've met there, they've often kind of make they make you kind of earn the experience of Paris. And I mm-hmm. think it's not like the the stereotypical French, you know, kind of chip on their shoulder. I, I don't experience that at all. But they do take themselves and their city and their culture very seriously. And so they expect you to as well. And as soon as you do, then you'll have a great opportunity and you have a wonderful time with them. And my The peak of my French fluency, which is not very much, but I finally got a shopkeeper to respond to me <laughs> in French after I don't know how many years of trying. And it was a chocolate shop. It was a very high-end chocolate place. And he said to me, I asked him, could I have some chocolate delivered to this woman who had been very helpful with the book? And he answered me in French, so it was a big smile. And then he spent 10 minutes telling me why that was absolutely impossible, what what I wanted him to do. (laughs) Was I mad to think that I would have chocolates delivered? That was just, I should have, take them myself. And so that's what I mean. It was an invitation, like I was happy to buy his chocolates, but a challenge in the sense like, no, I can't have them delivered. What are you, American?
0: And I said yes. So I know from personal experience of readers of my books that readers love bookshops. They love reading about bookshops. Um, I also know from personal experience what it's like to own a bookshop and that readers tend to romanticize the idea of what it is like to own a bookshop. What were your feelings about bookshops as you approached this novel? And did you have any particular shops in mind as you created your Fictional shop, The Late Edition.
1: I absolutely did. I had two bookshops in mind, and uh, and I'm very much skewed to. I, although I've never run a bookshop, I spend a, plenty of time in them, yeah. and I'm good friends with uh, a number of booksellers. And so, from all of them, I had kind of like an anti-romantic. Well, I have both. I have not met a bookseller who does not love. Right books. Yeah. You can't be, I think you can, I think you can sell cars without loving cars, but I don't think you can sell books without loving books. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. At the same time, I've not met a bookseller who's like, this is a tough business. <laughs> you know, yeah. No one is like uh, going off to the South of France uh, on the earnings <laughs> right. of their bookshop unless they already own a bookstore in the South of France. And so my home bookshop, Boswell Books, which is in Milwaukee and a wonderful independent bookstore and Daniel Golden, the proprietor there, um, I was there for the very beginning of his story uh, more about nine years ago and I just remember th- and I've just stuck with him ever since yeah. mm-hmm. and my kids have a rule or we have a rule in our family that you can never pass a book stop without going in and you have to buy something mm-hmm. for my kids anything they want whenever we're in a bookstore you can have, there. not only can you have something, you must have something. Yeah, yeah. And so that's put me and friends in touch with a lot of booksellers. And then the other, the, the story that really kind of gave rise to this whole book was that we were in Paris with our kids and we were wandering down the street in the Marais and we went into this little English language bookstore called mm-hmm. The Red Wheelbarrow. And we met a woman there named Penelope who owned the Word Wheelbarrow. And she looked at my girls, and she kind of looked at us, and she had kind of a wistful expression. I said, what's the matter? And she said, well, uh, your daughters remind me of my daughter who's older now and gone away, and it's just gotten too hard to run the bookstore all by myself. And then she kind of looked at my wife and I and she said, Would you like to buy the book? Oh my gosh. (laughs) And she was joking, but also not joking. And uh, so it was something, it was like a topic of great fascination for me. And we had a long walk back to the metro uh, where we talked about it and we talked about how this would never work and we would go penny, you know, we would be penniless in about six months. But uh, nevertheless, it gave me a seed of an idea. Yeah. And I'm very excited because I'm going to be going back to Paris in March, and I'm going to see Penelope, and she's reopened the store okay. in a new location. Yeah. So
0: there is yeah. magic in bookselling after all. So having told that uh, anecdote, can you tell us now about the setup of Paris by the Book?
1: Yes, I can. So. Uh, I always want to like match it to the audience. So I'm I'm not sure what the podcast audience here, like there's flying saucers that come and there's an invasion. (laughs) There's none of that. Uh, The the story of the book is that a young family in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the uh, husband, the father of the family is a writer. And one day he disappears. Mm and he leaves him behind an unfinished manuscript about a family in Paris. And so the daughters and wife that he leaves behind have this kind of wild sense that, well, maybe he hasn't disappeared. The police think he's drowned because mostly the clues lead to Lake Michigan and a drowning. But the daughters had this romantic sense that, you know what, dad hasn't drowned. He's actually in Paris somewhere, and we need to go and find him. And so the mother, to kind of distract them and also just get everybody out of the estates for a while, agrees, and so they go to Paris for a week. And then one thing leads to another, more clues arrive, and they kind of accidentally find themselves running a Mm bookshop, not unlike the one that my wife and I were offered, uh, which eerily looks very similar to the cover of the book, which I never told the designer about, so that is just magic that's occurring there. (laughs) So once they get to Paris, they follow uh, Ludwig Bemmelman's and Albert Lamaurice around Paris and they additional clues, they learn how to run a bookshop, there may be a dip in the Seine, uh, Mystery <laughs> Occurs and all kinds of things about Paris and book loving and, and a lot of parenting takes place there. Yeah, yeah. Would you read us a short excerpt from the book? I'd be happy to. So I'm I was looking all over for a place to read, but I think I'm gonna read from the first chapter. Comes to, I do have a prologue and I just want to plant a flag. I'm an author who believes in prologues. I know this is a debate fostered by Elmore Leonard, <laughs> right. um, but I, I believe in prologues. So, but that said, uh, I'm going to move past the prologue and read chapter one because I'm going to read the prologue at the uh, Bookmarks movable Feast event here. So I thought I'd read something else for this crowd. So I'm just going to read the first uh, page and a half. And this is Leah. The uh, narrator is the uh, wife and mother who has been looking for her husband and now finds herself proprietor of this store. She says, I've long considered the front of our bookstore a trap, one carefully set. This is as it must be, although we are in the wearyingly popular Marais district. We are in the lower Marais, closer to the Seine, but farther from the falafel stands and creperies, the pedestrian streets, and thus the crowds, and thus customers. One side of our block is almost entirely taken up with the blank back wall of a monastery, which may or may not be occupied. Despite all the bells, I've never seen a monk on the sidewalk. Opposite the monastery a succession of shops like ours, peering out from the ground floors of anonymous flat front buildings in various shades of cream, forever staining yellow. High above, zinc roofs slowly bruise black. Windows shrug away shutters. Here and there appear flowers or their remains so too wrought iron railings were their remains. And down beneath, down beneath our store, bright red, like an apple, a wound. The has always been red, but it was deeper, bluer, more towards the color of Cabernet when I first saw it. It was my choice to update it to cherry, almost firetruck red. This caused a mild scandal even though I cleared it with our landlord, the store's original proprietor, Madame Briard. One painter quit on me before he got started, and another quit after scraping and priming. Upon the recommendation of my street concierge, Laurent, I finally hired a man who spoke as little French as I did and thus didn't care what anyone thought. Laurent looked up and down the street. The painter had not only gotten exactly right the clarion red I wanted. He layered what looked to be 36 coats of clear lacquer on top. It shone as if it had been enameled in molten lollipop. Laurent said I should sell them lollipops. I shook my head. He shook his. We sell books. Mm.
0: So writing about the red makes me think about the Red Balloon. And you read about um, rainy day showings of the red balloon in American schools, which I remember well from, yes. from my youth. In fact, I still have my copy of the book yes. um, of The Red Balloon. And one of the things I thought was so interesting in your writing about La Maurice is this idea that we can't really be defined by any one success or failure or accomplishment. Is he the guy who made The Red Balloon? or is he the guy who invented the game of risk? I mean, right. I think it's incredible. And I wonder, first of all, if you could talk about what that notion means to you personally, but also is this a, an idea that has special relevance in a time where every time we turn on the news, someone's life is coming crashing down because of one mistake that they made you know, 20 years ago?
1: That's a really interesting way to put it. I think that it is interesting. I feel like La Maurice lived in a different time where he worked very slowly and very deliberately Mm -hmm. in a very small space, and so I don't think he would have been suited to the 21st century at all. At the same time, he was such an adventurer and explorer, this might have been the perfect time for him to be alive. I do think, I think one of the things that the book reflects on is that what it means to be present and show up for your art. Yeah. And the writer at the dis- at the heart of the book who disappears, that's a challenge that he wrestles with. Mm-hmm. It's something that his wife and family who leave him behind wrestle with. He was someone who was defined by early success and then none. And in the same way, La Maurice had wonderful success, Success. You know, success oh, about three three films into his career, and then really struggled after that, and then met a tragic, tragic end in Iran, uh, filming a a documentary for the Shah of Iran. And I think what's interesting is that we still remember him for this beautiful, beautiful film. 33 minutes is all it takes, and that's enough. And I I think it's chastening to be an artist, and I'd be interested to hear what you think, but I think it's chastening to be an artist to think, like, you work so hard, not just on one sentence or one book, but for a whole kind of, you know, stretch of work, and then after you die, People are just like, oh, he was the guy who, who did the red balloon right, or, right. or he was the guy who did Paris by the Book. Or he was yeah. the guy who did like another book. Like yeah. and yeah. so it's just so interesting to think like you can work really hard on this, but you know, as the years pass and the decades fall, you'll just be remembered for one thing. I think that's that's both a terrifying thing and a beautiful thing yeah. that you'll be
0: remembered. Yeah. I mean you we we do not get to be the editors of our of our own lives. And really we're the only ones who can see the entire scope of our career. We not only know all all the books we've published, we we know all the books we haven't published. All the sentences that ended up getting taken away by the delete key. Exactly. Um, You you talk about both the Red Balloon and the Madeline books by uh, Ludwig Bemelmans as almost sort of tour guides of of Paris for this family. What's the difference between La Maurice's Paris and Bemelmans' Paris?
1: Oh, that's a great question and one that I have how long is this podcast? Are we have three, three hours? like, <laughs> I, Or actually, I guess I wrote a whole book about that. I mean, one of the things that the characters in the book talk about are these two different visions of Paris. Yeah, yeah. And it's not that tidy. It's not like Bumbleman's and La Marie set out to create different visions of Paris. But it is true that Bumbleman's Paris, and his is pitched to well, they're both pitched for kids, but Bemelman's Paris and those Madeline books is kind of bright and so sunny. There's a lot of dash mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. to the artwork. There's a lot of color that's saturated every page. It's a lot of fun. Um, it looks like you took about 30 seconds to make each book, which is not true. He went, like the rest of us, through 30 or 40 drafts. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, La Maurice's Red Balloon, while it takes in much of Paris's core and most famous sites, it nevertheless is shot mostly in Montmartre, montant which, Venice now is a fairly gritty neighborhood to the northeast of Paris. Yeah. Um, not at all an unsafe place. I've walked through it many times, but it's not necessarily like gorgeous winding streets yeah. and things like that. And um, it, it's better than it was as depicted in the film when kind of post-World War II rubble is still yeah. present. But I think La Maurice is reminding us that, you know, beauty comes in all places, not just down, downtown by the Eiffel Tower, but up here in the part, of Paris, where people don't visit all the time, yeah. and I think Bemmelman's for his part, actually, I mean, Madeline in that first book does have an appendectomy in the middle of the night. So, like, yeah, yeah, not everything is perfect in these yeah, books, yeah. and I think that's something that's really helpful to be reminded of when you get to Paris and you realize, like, it's not sunny all the time. It's actually an extremely rainy city, but, yeah. Um, yeah. but the Paris tourist board will accuse me of sabotage if I say <laughs> that. So I
0: take that back. It's perfectly sunny right now. The status quo at the start of the novel is that Robert is missing. What for you goes into determining that opening status quo and what made you decide to start the story after he disappeared and then go back?
1: That's a great that's a great question too. I was just I was just talking about this with someone else about how I, I know every author works differently, but my way of writing is a lot and I've credited this quote to different people. So I if you have authors tuning in and if I miscredited this please uh Please let my host know. So I think it's E.L. Doctorow who said that writing is like driving at
0: night. Yeah. You that, can always he, see he's the person who I most often hear that credited yeah. to. Yeah. I
1: also heard it said William Stafford, but we'll go with Doctorow. And so you can only see as far as the headlights, and right. that's far yeah. enough. So for me, I do that. I drive at night, and then I, when I get to the end, then I go back and I realize, oh, wait, the book was supposed to start over here. Yeah. So I actually was pretty deep into this book um, in third person, and uh, actually mostly from the husband's point of view. And then one day I had that thing, which I'm sure occurs to no one else, but I had a little spout of writer's block one morning. And something I often tell my students uh, to do if they ever experience that is to switch points of view just sure. as an experiment for yeah. the day. And so I said, all right, I passed the mic around to my characters, and the person who spoke up the most was Leah, the woman, uh, mm-hmm. who wound up narrating the book. And she took that microphone and she just wouldn't let it go. Yeah. Yeah. And when she started talking, she also started talking with this, um, this kind of this Tone or Ella Jackier, that I realized that something terrible had happened, but it had happened in the past. And so that's when I realized, like, oh, so this is where this book starts. It right. starts with her. So it's interesting when you're talking about, you know, we're the only people who get to see our whole oeuvre. In, like, this case, I also can see the ghost book that was actually in the middle of this book for a
0: long time, and then I had to get rid of in order to get through the whole book. Yep. Do you think do you create a, t- a tension between... I would say between denial and acceptance, between being stuck in the past and moving into the future by having Robert's disappearance be unsolved. We don't really know mm-hmm. whether he's alive or whether he's dead. Do you think that's the central t- tension that's driving the novel? She can't move forward, but she can't go back? I think so.
1: I think it's also uh, it's a tension between reality and unreality Mm -hmm. like there's a Mm -hmm. there I feel like one of the one of the themes of the book and I get very nervous when I talk about themes of the book because I feel like in some ways the author is the last person to know what their book is
0: about exactly
1: but if I had to say I feel like one of the stories of the book is the stories that we tell each other to make sense of the world and so and so on one level that's the story that we tell each other of Paris like this is the most special place in the world I've ever been to I have to be kind of, I have to act, like one thing that's always struck me about visiting Paris, I've never been there and not seen a couple stop in the middle of a bridge, turn around, kind of realize where they are, and kiss. Yeah. Because yeah. they're in Paris. Right. Like, they just like, and you can tell that, like, there's almost like, you know, on some of them, there's like a blank fear. Like, if we don't kiss, we've missed
0: out. That's, it's on our little checklist right. of things to do in Paris. Exactly.
1: Yes. And that is the narrative. And so I, and so expanding that to my characters, I feel like something that Leah and Robert, the the husband and wife in this family, Uh, they had told each other a story of who they were and of their marriage Mm -hmm. and of their lives as families and parents. And they had to wrestle with that, what's true and what's not true. And so as the mystery of the book kind of continues, it turns out Leah realizes that living inside that story that can be a real challenge, especially if the story suddenly starts to divert from what appears to be real. So okay. uh, this pl- I agree with you that kind of denial and acceptance and tension, um, but it's funny because as a writer, that's we live in kind of a land of make-believe all the time. Yeah. Yeah.
0: The novel at the start doesn't feature just the absence of a man, but in many ways, the absence of men. Um, Leah lives with two daughters. She runs a bookstore that belonged to the woman who lives upstairs. Her mentor, Eleanor, was a woman. Why did you choose to write about women and what do you hope to show about the ways in which they support each other?
1: Oh, I just, I'm a firm believer that women are much more interesting characters. So I, I also live with many women. I mm-hmm. have daughters myself yeah. uh, and a wife uh, who I think is still at home if when I get back from North Carolina, <laughs> I, I hope she'll so, so still be there. Um, I just, I've always found uh, women characters to be kind of fascinating, and I'm just kind of drawn to them. Yeah. Uh, and I don't consider myself an expert in women. I just consider myself an expert in Leah. Like this yeah. this yeah. woman, I understand. Right. Yeah. But I did want to show like the... And I think maybe this comes from being a father or daughters, but I love that old 70s bumper sticker, like a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to show that there's another way of uh, constructing a world that actually doesn't require like the traditional family units we understand, like the father coming in. Um, but actually, the women can form a community and kind of establish themselves and stand up for themselves mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in part that 's because um, you know not just of the women that I know but also the women that I met in Paris who I met a number of women women who were single mothers, women who ran bookstores, women who were teachers, and uh, they had like an unapologetic kind of stance in place in the world and a sense of kind of being brave and competent and I thought. I was just blown away. I was like, that's the story I want to write. Yeah. And so, and it was also one of those things where you just let the character take you where she wants to go, and that's where Leah wanted to go.
0: Mm-hmm. Leah doesn't know if her husband's dead or alive. In some ways, to her, he is, he is both dead and alive. I had this realization about halfway through. I thought, oh, he's Schrodinger's husband. You know? <laughs> um, but she does feel that she's lost him, whether he's dead or mm-hmm. alive. He, he has been lost. And she talks about a peculiar descent into a peculiar grief. Can you talk a little about her thoughts on the subjects of loss and grief.
1: Yeah, that's a really good. Boy, no one's asked me that question yet. Thank you. That's uh, that that is another question that really preoccupies me in a lot of my writing. The sense of what happens when you mourn something that you can't quite get your arms around. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. that in this case, and I read a lot of um, I read a lot of memoirs on grief, mm-hmm. uh, including uh, Megan Orr-Work's beautiful one about her mother. But then I also read a, a number of haunting accounts of people who had lost, um, lost members of their family, uh, either as missing in action in war, or they just disappeared. Mm-hmm. And I read, what fascinated me in those accounts is how much kind of additionally painful they were, because there really wasn't any closure. Because with people who suffered the death of a loved one, say, in like hospice, and they're right there. That's very painful, but they saw them die, right. they saw them buried, and life
0: had an end. They had some closure. You
1: know. But someone who loses someone literally to the world, you never know if they're going to walk back in the door. Right. And that to me seems like an almost untenable position for the survivors to, what do they do? What Mm -hmm. do they do when they're left behind like that? And I think it's something that Leah constantly wrestles with. And so, and Paris is particularly a good place to be a distracting place, but it also can make you feel very lonely if you're not there with that person to stop in the middle of the bridge and exchange a kiss with. And so I thought that was kind of an interesting way to juxtapose juxtaposed to two things, like a place to be alone where everyone else is coupled up.
0: So Leia narrates the book, and she's going through all of this because of the fact that her husband just walked out the door. Yeah. How do you keep the reader from having absolutely no sympathy for Robert?
1: I think it's a real challenge. I mean, I think that, uh, that he is—well, I don't want to spoil it, So, I mean, but he's definitely, yeah. not, he's definitely not an admirable guy. Um, at the same time, he's had he's had a rough go of it. He had a rough childhood. He had a, a bumpy adulthood. In some ways, he's not really um, fully prepared for the world. He makes life more difficult for himself mm-hmm. in ways that he shouldn't. Uh, and so it's difficult for him to um, kind of be... Well, I, I can't argue that he's an attractive character, but it's it's hard for him to kind of have redeeming qualities at the same time I wanted to show that he's just not a he's not a villain. No, no. No, he's not but um and so but things have happened to him that certain people overcome and he's not one of those people who can overcome it. And yeah. I think there's like this a story about bravery in the book that doesn't attach to him. Uh right. Leah's a very brave person and Robert is not. Yeah. And I think that's what kind of defines the two of them.
0: I think he I mean there he has those moments, there's moments with his daughters and there's moments when he's courting Leah that mm-hmm. are you know, where you just see this Really sweet guy.
1: Yeah, and and I think he just doesn't give himself a break. And uh, and I know there's people like that out in the world. And it was it was interesting. One part of the book that didn't uh, make it in there. And I'm trying to think if I tell this anecdote if I'll spoil it for readers. Well, anyway. So one part of the book that didn't make it in there was that I had Robert go off and join the French Foreign Legion. Oh gosh. And um, and where you know you lose your identity and you go travel around the world. And so to do that. Uh, to do some research along that. I went to Paris, and I actually walked to the Foreign Legion's recruiting post, mm-hmm. which is actually not downtown in Paris, but it's outside Paris in the suburbs. And mm-hmm. so I took the trip out there, and I was just walking. And I thought, and I was kind of imagining Robert doing that walk, and I thought, he's never going to make it. Yeah. He's going to chicken out. Because it was a good long walk from yep. the train station. Yep. He would have had plenty of time to think about it. And I thought, he's not going all the
0: way. That's that's an interesting way, though, to put yourself into the the shoes of your character
1: yeah Uh, no no it was really it was fascinating it was fascinating
0: Robert in many ways is almost literally consumed by writing Um, at one point he says that writing is killing him what is your relationship to writing and how does it I'm hoping differ from Robert's relationship (laughs) to writing
1: (laughs) mine's totally healthy like every other writer out there (laughs) I just you know sit down the words flow I think you know my relationship with writing is that it is a way to make the world make sense for me Uh, And so I find that um, I do better on days when I've written because I've had some kind of a sense that what I had in my head, I got down on page and organized the world around me. It's a way to kind of let my imagination flow and make sense of sometimes a reality that doesn't make much sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's hard. Uh, I'm a big fan of, uh, now we have to do that quotation game again, was it it Poe or Twain who said,
0: writing isn't hard, you just stare at the page until your forehead starts to bleed? Yeah, or there's another one that's writing isn't hard, you just take a blank sheet of paper and open a vein. Yes, exactly. uh, So I've never bled on
1: the page, um, (laughs) but nevertheless, I do kind of feel that, I, I feel like for me, what is more true is that it's like kindling and it's like starting a fire and yeah. so the like the first bits those are the hardest because yeah. but oh, once yeah. the fire is going then you can just feed it and yeah. off to yeah. the races yeah. um, but I think I think it's a wonderful art it's a I just like I'm I feel um, I feel very fortunate to to do an art that requires just a piece of paper and a pen yeah and uh, you know I I don't know if for visual artists they can quite do the same thing. I guess you could have like a little sketch pad uh, and do it that way too but um, I feel like writers have it very lucky. At the same time, there's a lot that's unlucky about it because
0: there's a lot... <laughs> it's trying to get your voice heard out in the yeah, world is a big yeah, challenge. Yeah. The book is about many things, but one of the things, it's about, and one of the things that, that resonated the most with me as the father of two children is it's about the relationship between a mother and her daughters. Um, tell us a little bit about Daphne and Ellie and about the things that bind them to their mother as well as the things that threaten to break apart those bonds?
1: That's a great question. The, um, I, I don't know if you can confess to loving your characters, but I especially love the two daughters yeah. in this book. Yeah. And so Ellie is the older daughter. She's 16 in the book, uh, and Daphne is a younger child, uh, and she's 12. Ellie is kind of rebellious and crazy and out there and headstrong and very upset that her dad is gone, but not really sure how to express that anger. She just knows that she is angry, and she's very angry at her mom because her mom is present Uh, And she's also angry at Daphne, who's kind of sweet, studious, bookish, um, but also bearing uh, a whole heart full of woe uh, Mm -hmm. because of what's happened. And so their relationship with their mom, they both, I feel like in some ways they blame her for dad disappearing, uh, but they also give her credit for getting them to Paris. And so her mom, their mom is both a, a catalyst into this new life, but uh, endlessly an obstacle to everything that they want to come back. And so it's hard because uh, those are tough years to parent through anyway, the teenage years. And then Leah, as the mom, has the additional overlay of like, they're in a foreign country, they need to learn a new language, and they need to figure out a way to make it through the world without her partner in life. And that proves to be a tremendous challenge for her. And so for me, I had I had nothing to study at home. My own daughters are perfect and sweet in every single <laughs> way. Uh, I mean, they really are. But um, but I thought that uh, just putting these girls under the pressure cooker of all that they were going through and trying to navigate the world of boys and school and um, and again, kind of making a new self, uh, becoming because now they're no longer the family that they were in the states, which was like a right. perfect little four-person family in mm-hmm. Milwaukee. Now they're like that group uh, in Paris, and they they're like. Oh, they're kind of on the outside, and I think when you're an expat in a place, but especially in a place like Paris, it's very easy to kind of you're very you're pulled out of your own self a lot, and you kind of regard yourself like, what do I look like as I move down the street? Mm-hmm. What do I look like behind the shop window? Uh, it's something to be kind of acutely aware of, and I think they're they're aware of, as teenagers you're aware that you know, like what do I look like to the world? But
0: in a hyper sort of way yeah. in Paris, I think you know they they go through the same things that any parent and child go through but it gets magnified by the fact that you're living in a foreign country my family and i actually did this my my wife and i and my daughter lived in england for 6 months when our daughter was 9 years old mm. and there were times when it was a real struggle for her there were times when we thought should we have done this should we mm-hmm, go home early mm-hmm. um and yet if you asked her now, she will absolutely tell you it was the best thing that ever mm-hmm. happened to her. Um, and so there's, there's those parenting moments where you think, I must be doing the wrong thing. Right. And then 10 years later, you find out, oh, whew, actually, right. I was doing the right thing. <laughs>
1: right. Well, you just never know along the way. I always say that, like, the drugstore should have prepaid therapy cards. It, like, you know, <laughs> after you did
0: something, you're like, oh, my God. All right, I'm going to have to buy a card because 10 years on, you're going to really need it. There's this great part of the novel, we've been talking a lot about Paris, and we'll probably talk more about Paris, but part of the novel is set in Wisconsin, where you live, and there's this sequence where where Robert is courting Leah, and he says, I'm gonna take you to Paris, I'm gonna take you to Rome, and he takes her to these little villages all over Wisconsin that are named after the grand cities of, of Europe and of the world. Uh, are these real places and did you actually go to these places? They're absolutely real and I, I didn't go to
1: all of them but I went to a ton of them yeah, so yeah. I mean one of the things that fascinated me uh, so yeah so uh, while they're courting and they have no money uh, Leah and Robert decide to go on a world tour and they're able to do that within Wisconsin yeah. and I, I haven't to I have looked into it extensively but Wisconsin may have more cities named for foreign capitals than any other state they yeah, certainly yeah. not the only place yeah. um, and Paris uh, by my unofficial count may be the city that gets most named around the country. Although, uh, and which is historically true, and this is also put in the book, is that Paris, Wisconsin is named for Paris, New York. Like they wouldn't even (laughs) presume to name themselves for Paris, France. Um, But I just found that fascinating because I feel like, and I I kind of riff on this in the book a little bit, like to name a city, a tiny little town of say 600 for Cuba. Like there's a Cuba city, Wisconsin is to dream of a place where you're not, but also to kind of infuse every day with a certain sort of hope. Like there's another place that we're connected to either by tradition or heritage or just sheer name. Uh, And it just, I find it endlessly fascinating. So there's actually, there's two Paris Wisconsins uh, because they couldn't get enough of it. The one in, uh, in, in, uh, literarily enough, the one that's located closest to me is uh, either home to or right across the street from the local Amazon distribution center. So it looks different from the Paris and France. I, I
0: always loved the, the way that Americans name their cities after European cities and then violently mispronounce them. We have a Viana not very far from where oh. you and I are sitting right now. I, I did my graduate work in Montpelier, Vermont. Oh, uh, yeah. Versailles, Kentucky. I think it's my favorite ever. But, or, uh,
1: yeah, there's uh, actually in... The Milwaukee area, one of the suburbs, is called New Berlin, yeah. uh, which yeah. came about apparently during World War II, so no one would confuse
0: it with... With the old one. Thing. Yes. Yeah. You write, Parisians treat their bookshops a bit like they treat their bakeries. They're both commonplace and important, not something to fetishize. It's just bread. They're just books. But still do some extra respect. I just, I love that passage. W- what do you think should be the place of bookshops in American society? How should we treat our bookshops?
1: Foundational. I think there's another line somewhere in the book where I talk about how books uh, bookstores are like the safe deposit box for civilization. And I absolutely believe that. I mean, Paris, and I've, I've written an article on this. I just had to get it finished and printed. Um, but the Paris uh, French uh, sub- subsidizes its bookstores. It's mm-hmm. it's uh, francophone bookstores, yeah. and so they invest in it, and they put in a bunch of laws to kind of protect protect that ecosystem of bookstores. I don't necessarily know that we need to do that in the United States. I don't think there'd be enough support for that. But I do think that the idea that uh, it's important for people to, for a whole host of reasons at this moment, to support the publishing industry, and by supporting the publishing industry, is supporting books and bookstores because bookstores and booksellers that's the way new books get announced. Yeah. There's a lot of places to buy books online, and I I won't knock that ecosystem either because it it moves a lot of product. But the human that sits at the heart of every book, because every book has an author, that human has a corollary in a bookstore, and that person brings a place to life. And so that's something that the French are acutely aware of, and that's why there's a bookstore. You know, every few blocks, there's another one. Uh, And I'd love for that to take place in the United States. I'm very cheered to see that in the past uh, four or five years, books have been holding, if not slowly, going up a little bit. I'm not sure if it's entirely true for fiction, but I wave a flag for any books that are getting sold. But
0: certainly independent bookstores have gone from rapidly closing their doors to now many more new ones opening their doors. You know, we've, here in Winston-Salem, for Decades we have called ourselves the City of the Arts, and we've had a very strong commitment to the performing arts and the visual arts. And in the last few years, um, with bookmarks and now opening a, a space downtown, and the, the literary arts have become part of that. They've become mm-hmm. you know equal to. It's it's one of the reasons we're sitting here talking yeah. in Winston Salem because you've come here for a literary arts event, and I see that happening um, all over the country where people are starting to understand that that. literary arts are one of the arts. Yes, there's a big industry involved, but it's still an art and deserving of the kind of support that you would give to the visual arts or the performing arts.
1: Absolutely. And I think that bookmarks as well, and I see this at a lot of stores I visit, has made an important aspect of being a community place, a place that people gather, and like literally a public square in exchange of ideas.
0: And I think that's that's an important role. And that to us in, in creating that space was was number one i mean we th- there's a lot of people come into our space to buy books, but we didn't want to be a place that you come to buy books, and we can also have events and yeah. have build community is a place to have events and build community where you can also buy books yes, and I think that that you know is a shift that is subtle but mm-hmm. nonetheless noticeable um, one of the challenges that's reflected in this book is because Robert's gone is the challenge of single parenting, and you mentioned mm-hmm. before that again, one of the things the book about is is, is about parenting. How does Leah cope with that um, differently from the way that she she parented when she was part of a team?
1: That's interesting. I think that she copes with it most sometimes by throwing her hands up in the air mm-hmm. and admitting yeah. that she can't. I think that one of the things that you know back in Wisconsin when she was. When the family was uh, intact and Robert hadn't disappeared, I feel like she—they were busy and everything. Like a lot of uh, young families, everything was kind of, you know, plunging on all pistons, and they were just kind of moving forward. And she, she was, she felt busy and everything was running, but she didn't realize exactly how much that was taking out of her. When she gets to Paris, I feel like because the chips are down, because she's in a place where she has to navigate so much on her own, because Robert's gone, she kind of. Had, allows herself to um, feel like it's okay not to be perfect, which is a funny place, and I think yeah. she may even reflect on this at some point, like Paris is a funny place to admit to imperfection, because Paris is a place that's very much interested in perfection, but she sees all the ways that Paris is flawed, and I think she kind of embraces her own flaws, sometimes too much for her kids' yeah, taste, yeah, yeah. Um, but I feel like that's how she gets through it. And then, and then of course she goes dancing every so often. Right, so right.
0: Leah, has this another great quote from the book about writing and about story writing she says here's what I believe stories provide a frame a form a mold and a good story one that's retold for generations demands you pour the messy contents of your own life into it to see what happens as it hardens and sets as a writer what do you think is the essence of a really great story I think that's I think that's a huge part of it I think that
1: in stories we can kind of recognize um, something about our own lives mm-hmm. or not. Something may seem very foreign to our own lives, but some, a story can unlock something that we may not necessarily understand about our own past or, for that matter, future. And by reading how another author is tackling it or how another how characters are tackling it, that can in some ways help us figure out things. Not that all novels need to be self-help. I think they can also be escapists. It's, it can be helpful to read someone else's going through some trials that you're not. Yeah. Yeah. But I do feel like, the, again, that there's a certain sort of essence like, one person telling a story to another is creating a story between the two of them. Yeah. I'm very much a believer in the fact that readers complete a story, yes, in the sense that this and that the perfect book exists between the two of you. And I think Lee is getting at that there too. That yeah. the, there's something about the mold of someone else's story that when you pour your own life into it, you can recognize
0: your own successes and failures to a different degree. So. This question, I actually would rather ask somebody else this question, but you're the person I have here in the room, so I'm going to have to ask okay. you the question. But Leah talks about what it's like to be married to a writer. <laughs> uh, and I just wonder, in your experience as a married writer, what do you think your wife would say are the challenges and the rewards of being the spouse of her writer? Well, I noticed
1: that there was like, she could have had a free night at dinner tonight, so that would have been great. Yeah. But she's about 1,000 yeah. miles away, yeah. so that benefit of being a writer's spouse is not so much. <laughs> I think that uh, she would say a challenge of it is that she gets to see acutely everything that any working writer gets to see, which is um, trying to be an artist in the world today is not an easy thing yeah, yeah. Um, for anybody, mm. you know, even for hugely successful authors. Sure, and for yeah. those of us who are pedaling really fast in the deep end of the pool, it can be a real challenge. And so that, that can be hard for a spouse. Um, but I also think she gets to kind of share and like she gets to be part of, she kind of says like... She um, happily is employed and has benefits. and yeah. uh, I, I work for a university, too, um, but uh, she in many ways keeps us afloat, and she kind of refers to it as a, the Susan Callanan Fellowship <laughs> that I want. <laughs> and so, but she feels very really important, like, you know, the two of us together make a team that's directly supporting the arts, to whatever limited yeah. degree I'm yeah. supporting the arts. Yeah. And so I think that
0: that's a big part of it. I and mean, I think that's true in any, any partnership. It's very difficult to do something creative if you don't have the support of the people immediately around you and especially of your family. So I I was going to end this part of the podcast with the quote that you already beat me to, but I'm going to read it again because I love it so much. And that is every bookstore is like a safe deposit box for civilization. I don't have a question about that. I just want the listeners to hear it one more time because it's, it's just something I think we all need to need to think about. Um, we like to end every episode of Inside the Writer Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give us all something to think about in terms of writing and in terms of your own career as well. So if you're ready for the speed round, okay. we will begin. Okay. What word do you love to work into your writing? Synapse. Hmm. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Intubate. <laughs> Where is your favorite place to write? Oh, I have a secret office. Oh. Where could you never write? Uh, on a cafe in the Champs-Elysees. <laughs> to what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Splitting infinitives. What was the first book you remember reading? Uh, the Red Balloon. What are you reading now? I just finished Last by Andrew Sean Greer. What book would you like to have written? I really liked less.
1: I thought, there's a 50-year-old novelist, a story about a 50-year-old novelist who's perfectly happy. So yeah. that
0: seems like a good way to go. What sort of book would you like to write but probably never will? A book about sailing around the world. Hmm. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? That your book changed my life for the better. Hmm. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a new community gathering place and independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been Leem Callanan, whose novel Paris by the Book is available wherever books are sold, and of course you can get signed copies at Bookmarks. Leem, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Inside the Writer Studio posts new shows on the 15th and last day of every month. On our next show, I'll be talking with Tommy Tomlinson, author of The Elephant in the Room, One Fat Man's Quest to Get Smaller in a Growing America. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.